We're going to be in the book of Romans this morning, chapter 11, verses 25 through 36. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. All right, did you find Romans 11 in your Bible? If not, you can uh, make your way there now. We're in Romans 11, 25 through 36. And this serves sort of to end uh, a major part of the book of Romans. I don't know if you're inter that interested or not. I'm going to tell you anyway. The way Romans is broken down, there are kind of two major sections, kind of. I'm just kind of generalizing here a little bit. But chapters 1 through 11 generally speaking, is telling us what the gospel is from a lot of different angles, from a perspective of a Jewish person, perspective of a Gentile person, perspective of a religious person or an irreligious person. So Romans 1 through 11 is sort of, here's what the gospel is for 11 chapters. And then Romans 12 to the end of the book is, since the gospel is true, and if you have believed it, how then should you live? And so we're sort of arriving now today at the end of that section of outlining the details of the gospel and how it might be implicated in our lives. And now, going forward, we'll be looking at what then does the life of a person look like who has believed the gospel. So we're looking forward to that as well as we uh, move into the next section. So this section, though, is a warning. Oh, boy, it got quiet there. It's a warning. How's a warning work? If you're driving somewhere, maybe you're driving over the coast, maybe you know that road that drives over to Brookings. You go out through Grants Pass, was it 199 or something like that, and you head out, and there will be signs along the road. So you'll be driving on the road. You know the road I'm talking about that goes to Brookings? And you'll be driving, and it goes from four lanes with a median to four lanes without a median to two lanes to a hiking path. <laughs> and then once you get to that point, a sign shows up. And what's that sign say? Road narrows. You know, this, there, it's not actually physically possible for this road to be passable if it were any uh, more narrow. So it's a warning. The road is narrowing. There's another sign along that road. It says, falling rock. And I think that's the most, what am I going to do? You're on a road that's about three feet wide. If a rock's going to fall, it's going to fall. I and mean, you don't even need to tell me about it. In fact, it's going to be better for all of us if you just don't tell me about it. Just let the rock do what it's going to do. Uh, there might be other signs you see. Uh, high winds. 
Sharp corner coming up. That's another great sign. This is just pro tip for you uh, new drivers. You'll see those signs with an arrow that kind of has a bendy in it. And then underneath that is the suggested uh, speed to navigate that corner. Properly read. That's challenge accepted. I, and then you bid on it. I see you 10 miles an hour. I think I can do this 10 additional miles an hour and keep uh, all four wheels on the road surface. So that's how you, uh, that's my understanding when I read the Oregon Road Manual. That's, uh, that's kind of a minimum speed for navigating those corners. Steep grade. All these signs are there to, to tell us there's a stretch road. Maybe you're not familiar with it. And so therefore, you need to pay attention to what's coming. And what we have in this passage, among other things, but primarily what we want to focus on is a warning. And the warning is telling us this, faith ought to humble us. So that's the title of the message today, How Faith Humbles. Look at verse 25 of Romans 11. This is the main idea here. Lest you be wise in your own sight. I don't want you to be unaware of a mystery. So Paul is saying, listen, I don't want you to be unaware of a mystery. He's going to explain to us what that is. I, but the warning is this. There's a chance, having found Christ, having found the good news of the gospel, that Jesus saves sinners by faith alone, in Christ alone, because of his work on the cross alone, there is a chance we might become wise in our own eyes. But the gospel doesn't make us arrogant in our wisdom or spiritual insight. In fact, the gospel ought to bring us great humility. And we're going to look this morning at how faith humbles. How faith humbles. The first way it humbles us is we recognize that God's purposes are incredible, not us. How does faith humble? We recognize that God's purposes are incredible, not us. Let's read verses 25 26 and 27 again. Lest you be wise in your own sight, do not want you to be unawares of this mystery, brothers. Here's the mystery. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written in the book of Isaiah. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. How faith humbles, God's purposes are incredible, not us. If you found yourselves ever in that occasion on the playground as a child where teams are being picked for kickball or uh, tag or football or whatever the recess game that was played when you were a kid, you generally have two captains and they're captains because they're popular or they're really good at the sport or whatever it is and they're going to pick teams and they usually go back and forth picking one person one who is the person you pick the person you pick first is the person who's good at the activity you're doing if you're going to be racing you want to pick the fast kids if you're going to be playing kickball you want to pick the kids who are good at kicking the ball and getting a home run you want to you pick the good kids that are good at it and and occasionally you will pick the kid that the recess monitor told you to pick yeah, you got to pick Billy. He keeps getting picked last. We need to pick him first. Otherwise, he's going to, you know, fall apart. But he's terrible. That's why we pick him last. Have you seen him play? I mean, that's where you're trying to... And the miners said, no. So the picking has something to do with the kids. And this is, in fact, we are programmed in many ways to assume this is the way the world functions. It is the way the world functions. So therefore, it must also be the way God functions in the gospel. 
And you may not have ever thought it out loud, and maybe you know that that doesn't feel right, but nonetheless, if it's, if it's the way that we are sort of programmed to think, the good ones get picked, there must be something about me that God has moved in me to believe. What we have to do is guard against spiritual arrogance. Lest you become wise in your own sight, it says. We have to guard against spiritual arrogance by recognizing this. Salvation is not intended to show how incredible saved people are. Salvation is intended to show how incredible God is. That's the purpose of it. The purpose is not to show how great saved people are. The purpose is to show how great God is who saves people. Verse 25. Avoid pride and pay attention to the example of Israel. Did God choose the people of Israel? Of course he did. He chose Abraham in Genesis, and he made a covenant with Abraham, and I'm going to use your people, and I'm going to bless the whole world. And so this was God's, I don't know, what do you call them? Chosen people. So we must assume we want to use them as an example. And look what he says as an example. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. So as a believer today, we must look at the people of Israel who have received a partial hardening according to the scripture here and recognize why is it that God has moved in my heart that I might believe in God for salvation? Is it because I'm awesome sauce? No, it's because God is awesome and he has just seen fit according to his purposes to bestow on my heart and yours by the power of the spirit of faith to believe in Christ. And if God can for a moment partially harden Israel to work in your heart, we must not have arrogance to think that God is now obligated. He is moving in a particular way to save those he has chosen, to bring himself great glory, and we must not in that moment when we find ourselves trusting God for salvation, being filled with this sense of spiritual arrogance, spiritual I'm awesomeness. His people are his people because of his promises, not because of who they are. His people are his people are because of his faithfulness to his promises and God's faithfulness to do what he said he was going uh, to do. Look at verse 26. In this way, all Israel will be saved. So what he's saying here is he is doing a work to make sure all who he has called to himself will receive salvation, those among the Gentiles as well as those among uh, Israel. So here, here's how God has been working. He has been working to redeem uh, lost people to himself in and through human history. So God uh, works within human history, which is broken with sin, broken with devastation, broken with the, the destruction that comes with sinful humankind. And God has seen for it to work within human history to bring about his plan of redemption. Maybe here's an example of thinking about it. Say, for example, your house is on fire and you're hiding in a closet in the fetal position. That seems like a reasonable thing to do. All of a sudden, there's a knock on the door and a fireman is there. Opens the door. I'm here. I am here to rescue you. And you get all aggravated with the fireman. How could you let my house catch on fire? I tell you what, I don't want to leave my house. How about you go out of here and stop messing around in here and go put the fire out? The problem is the house is on fire. And the fireman is saying, well, listen, the, the main thing is to get you out the house. And then we can handle that stuff later. 
So this is what we do to God. God shows up in a burning house, which is humankind, and we get mad at him that he's not fixing the burning house. He's saying, listen, that, that's going to come later. Read Revelation. But right now the job is I want to save people out of lostness, out of the destruction that's being, draw, being brought out by sin in the world around us. And God works, has decided to work within the brokenness of human history. He said, well, why would God work in this time and not fix everything? What God is trying to do is redeem people out of the brokenness of the world into the gospel. And the point of the gospel is to bring glory to himself by saving people out of a world that has abandoned him. And the mystery he says about Israel is, listen, he was working through Israel throughout the Old Testament. And now in these present times, he has seen fit to turn his attention to the Gentiles. Does it mean no one in Israel is getting saved? Of course not. People in Israel are getting saved. But now in this time, there's a partial hardening, and we are seeing Gentiles around the world turning to God for his grace. I mean, think through the Christian history we've seen in the last 2,000 years. So, you know, Jerusalem starts out, they're spreading the word, and finally persecution breaks out, so they spread all over uh, that part of the world. Pretty soon, Paul is up in Rome, and there's, there's people preaching the word into Spain, and then later on, we see a preaching up into Europe, and then we see a great uh, work of the gospel in Africa. Then, of course, we see as uh, uh, into the 19th and 20th century, a great move of the gospel in the Americas. And now, right now, one of the greatest places we're seeing the gospel work is in Asia and in South America. And then also we're seeing a great work of the gospel in what we often call the 2040 window with countries of Muslim influence. People are coming to the Lord, not because of missionaries, but because they're having dreams about Jesus. Oh, it turns out God can preach the gospel without it. It turns out. Right? And so we see the gospel moving around the world. And what is the most important thing of the gospel moving around the world? That God would be glorified. That his purposes are great. That God isn't moving in the gospel in our hearts because we are great. God is moving the gospel in our hearts because God's purposes are incredible. And that's what the Bible says. Look what it says in Isaiah. This is verses 26 and 27 in Romans 11. The deliverer will come from Zion. What does that mean? The deliverer, the Messiah will come from Zion. What's Zion? That's where David lives. So the deliverer, the Messiah is going to come from David and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them. I will take away their sin. So the Savior comes from David and he banishes ungodliness from Jacob. How does the Messiah banish ungodliness does he finally come up with the way to teach people how to behave well no it does. i don't know if you know anybody the answer is no he does something nobody would have expected what does he do he says i've got an idea i will be righteous on your behalf so the messiah comes from david and that is jesus and he lives his life perfectly And so Jesus is righteous on our behalf. Well, what about our sin? What do I do with my disobedience? He says, I will take away their sin. So how is Jesus going to take away our sin? He dies on the cross bearing on himself the penalty for our sin. So what happens is that a deliverer will come and he is going to do something that was unexpected. I am going to give you my righteousness and I am going to pay the penalty for your sin. So therefore... When we put our faith in Christ, we are as righteous as Christ, and our sin is paid for. It is taken away. It's just gone. 
by trusting in what Jesus said. So the, the miracle here is that God decides to make us like himself by doing all of the work and merely asking us to believe who he is and what he is doing. God will one day again, though, bring great numbers of people to faith among his people, the people of Israel. Uh, look over at Luke 21, verses 20 through 24. This is what Jesus has to say about it. Luke 21, verses 20 through 24. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea, that's the region around Jerusalem, flee to the mountains. Let those who are inside the city depart. Let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that's written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, there will be great distress upon the earth and the wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So we see this beginning in 70 AD when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, but we've seen this continue throughout history and it's going to culminate in a great event in the end. And at a time in history, at a certain time in the future, what Jesus is saying is the times of the Gentiles will be at end and the people of Israel will once again respond to God in obedience primarily through, through faith. So God is going to be faithful. God's plan is at work both in and through the people of Israel as well as the people who are Gentiles. Okay, go back to Romans chapter 11 if you happen to have uh, turned over to um, Luke 21. One commentator talked about this, his, the way God's working in history, like an oscillating fan. Do you know what an oscillating fan is? An oscillating fan is a fan you turn on and it goes back and forth. You, you look confused. Because it oscillates? It's a big word for me. I didn't, it has a C in it. Who would have thought? I've never understood oscillating fans. I mean, you turn on an oscillating fan, you're basically saying, I want to be cool sometimes. <laughs> like every now and then, I want cool air to be blowing on me. And then it goes away. You're like, oh, okay, that's the way that rolls. And then it comes, oh, there it is again, yay. And you think, why did I buy this fan? Why not just have a fan point at you? I, anyway, I guess that's a thing people are into. What were we talking about? History. We see here the work of God through his people operating kind of like an oscillating fan. He's, so at a certain point, he's working through the people of Israel. And God's plan and purpose to redeem humankind is working through the people of Israel. Not to the exclusion of Gentiles. We see numerous Gentiles finding the Lord through the history of Israel, uh, including Rahab. And, and so we, we have the work of God primarily through the people of Israel. And then the fan is sort of moving off after Christ descends into glory, and we see now the work of God and his gospel being primarily worked out through the, the, the Gentiles, those who aren't of Israel. doesn't mean Israel, people of Israel aren't being saved. They are. It just means now this is where God's plan is. What the Bible is telling us, it's going to go back at a certain point. And so Gentiles, get off your high horse. Simmer down. It's God who is amazing, not Gentiles. It's God who is amazing, not Israel. It's God's purpose to redeem people that's incredible, not the people who are redeemed. The purpose here is to bring glory to God, and we cannot bring glory to God if in our arrogance we assume we are better than those who have rejected God. It's arrogant. It's, the warning here is to guard against spiritual arrogance. The assumption that I am more insightful or spiritually sensitive or oriented towards God because I have believed. 
it's arrogance. That puts the, puts the focus on me and who I am or on you and who you are instead of saying, I am redeemed because God is just that good. And his plan is actually amazing enough that someone like you and someone like me would actually believe because of the power of the Spirit. The deliverer will come, Israel will respond, Gentiles will respond, and the glory goes to God. How faith humbles. God's plan and purposes are incredible, not us. Read your Bible. It's not full of incredible people. It's full of people who benefited from God's incredible plan to redeem sinners like us. How faith humbles. God's plan is, and purposes are incredible, not us. Okay, let's look at verses 28 through the end of the chapter. How faith humbles. God's faithfulness endures, not us. God's faithfulness endures, not us. If you have kids or grandkids over and you have dinner, maybe you'll do this at the end of the meal. You tell the kids, clear your spot, take your plate to the sink, okay? And depending on the kid, you're going to have one kid who's going to think, okay, I can do this in one trip or a bunch of trips. One trip sounds better. So they've got a plate half full of spaghetti. They've got a cup with, you know, red Kool-Aid. Then their fork and their knife and whatever else, and then on the, under their arm, their stuffed animal that they were eating with, and they're going to carry this. What are the odds of that getting to the sink? Zero. It's zero. And when that hits the floor, it will defy physics. You will find spaghetti sauce in the bedroom. <laughs> I don't know how it works. They, they build these hedron colliders. What they need to figure out is how come when kids drop stuff, you find stuff everywhere. That's what they did anyway. So what do you say to the kid? Use both hands. Grab, just take one plate. No, no, no. Take more than one trip. Ah, and they start whining, whatever. When kids are crying, what does that mean? They're learning. <laughs> I should write a parenting book. My kids are like, no, don't ever write a parent. Okay. So they grab with both hands, take more than one trip. Okay, so, so the kids are taking it. So here's what we think. God gives us salvation, and I got a grip onto that side with both hands. Because what if I drop it? What if I blow it? What if I ruin it? What if I'm finally that one Christian who was able to outsin God's grace? But here's the thing we don't have to grip our salvation with both our hands because the Bible tells us God is gripping it with both His hands. Faith humbles us because God's faithfulness endures, not us. God never quits. God never lies. We guard against spiritual arrogance in our hearts when we come to the understanding that our salvation is certain to the end only because God keeps his promises. We guard against spiritual arrogance in our hearts when we come to the understanding that our salvation endures to the end because God keeps his promises and God never lies. Look at verses 28 and 29, Romans 11. As regards to the gospel, they, they're talking about the people of Israel, are your enemies, are enemies for your sake, that is, they've rejected Christ. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Verse 29, listen. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Look at the history of Israel. Read through Genesis and Exodus and Judges and First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. The history of Israel tells us the people of God endure for one reason and one reason alone. 
God is faithful to keep his promises. Were the people of Israel faithful to keep God's covenant promises? And the answer is no. Throughout their history, it was a history of inability to maintain God's purposes and promises. The only reason the people of Israel remain the people of Israel is because God is faithful to keep his promises and God never lies. God never says something that doesn't follow through on it. And this is true for us as well. The reason we can receive Christ and his forgiveness and know it will endure until our last day on planet earth is not because we believe really hard. It's because God is faithful to keep his promises and God never lies. Think about some of the covenant promises God has made. Genesis chapter three, God says to the woman, your seed will crush his, the serpent's head. Did God keep that promise? Yes. Jesus on the cross crushed the serpent's head. How about Genesis 12 and 15 where God promises to Abraham that his offspring will bless the entire world. Did God keep that promise? Of course he did. He kept that promise through Jesus. And we just outlined a few minutes ago the way the gospel of Jesus Christ has circumnavigated the, the world several times over. 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes a promise to David and says, your throne will endure forever. Your son's kingdom will never end. Did God keep that promise? Yes. Pilate put the title of Jesus over his head on the cross. What was his title? King of the Jews. Pilate was accurate, but he thought he was awesome because he could kill the king of the Jews. What he didn't realize was you can't kill God. God lets himself die, and God doesn't stay dead. And so the king of the Jews is now alive, and he will never die. He lives forever, so God has kept his promise to David. God, in fact, has fulfilled every promise that he has made. And the new covenant is this. Put your faith in Christ for salvation. Trust God for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will, in this life, be made more like Christ. He who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. And you will live forever with God, forever in eternity. How do we know that's going to happen? How can we be certain when we trust Jesus, we will make it to the end? Because God always keeps his promises, and he never lies. Think about it this week. I see one or two of you who are, I'm thinking of. No, I'm kidding. That's terrible. Some of you had a bad week in the sin department. And some of you said, oh, it wasn't a bad week. It was a great week. It was a bad week. You didn't do a great job saying no to that one thing you know you're not supposed to do or think about or pay for or whatever. It's getting quiet. I'm talking to the other people, not you, right? First service didn't have a problem with this, so. Maybe it wasn't this week, but there was a week recently. How do I know? Your people's. You said something you regret. You thought something. You said, how is that possible that that could occur in my head? You did something that you know that if people knew about it, you'd be filled with shame. And the only reason you don't carry around additional shame is you've managed to keep it a secret. How is it that people like us who still struggle with the routine difficulties of sin might have confidence that when we step across the threshold at our death, God will welcome us into heaven? It had better not be because we're good at saying no to sin. It had better be because God just keeps his promises. 
That's why we know we will endure. That's why we know God will finish the work in us. That's why we know one day when we step across the threshold into glory, he will welcome us because he keeps his promises. He is the one who will make it certain that we will cross over into eternity with him. This is why we have confidence. Not because we're better than we're used to be and not because we're better than the guy next to us. The reason we have confidence is because God always keeps his promises. Look at verses 30 and 31 of Romans 11. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their, that is Israel's disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. So what he's doing here is comparing Israel and the Gentiles, this oscillating fan. Sure, right now God is working profoundly through the people uh, who are not of Israel, but a day will come back when that, when that fan is again on Israel, and Israel will, will, before the end, respond favorably to the gospel. Why is it important that the people of Israel are saved? It should be very, very important to us that the people of Israel have all of God's promises fulfilled. Because if God doesn't fulfill his promises to Israel, how is he going to keep his promise to you and I? So we'd have great hope in the fact that God will redeem his people, not every single person, but the people of Israel will respond. And we have great, that is one of our great hopes because we know God keeps his promises to his people. And as his people, we must know that. We have to trust that God always keeps his promise. Look at verse 32. God is consigned all to disobedience that he may have um, mercy on all. We read in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There has not been a human since Adam that has not been dead in their trespasses and sins. So all of us share this fate. All of us share this sin. All of us share this curse and this burden. And God moves in the hearts of many that we might receive faith receive salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what he's saying here. God has consigned all the disobedience and he has extended mercy to all, not all respond. Faith humbles. Because God's faithfulness endures, God never quits or lies. Maybe you've heard this before. There isn't anything God can't do. Have you heard that? You know, that's totally wrong. There's lots of things God can't do. He can't do anything contrary to his nature. Maybe you've heard this one before. Can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? Have you heard this? I'll give you the theological reason why God can't do that. It's contrary to his nature. Why? He's not an idiot. Why would, that doesn't make any sense. Why would anybody do that? I'm being serious. God is all-knowing. He's just sitting around. Gee, I got nothing to do. I played all the games on PS4, high score. I guess I'll make a Bronx so big I can't lift it. It doesn't make any sense. That doesn't bring him glory. There's a, but a number of other things God can't do. God can't lie. God cannot break his promises. God always acts perfectly in accordance with who he is. We're not used to that. You and I act differently than we are all the time. We're like chameleons in social settings trying to figure out how we fit with other people. God doesn't do that. He always acts perfectly consistent with who he is. He always keeps his promises. He always tells the truth. And he's also always good and kind and merciful. And this is what is the place where we find the surety, 
the foundation, the strength of our salvation. It's that God keeps his promises. And he can't break it. Because that's completely contrary to who he is. If he has called you by your name, and you have responded by faith and said, I trust Jesus for forgiveness, you will be certainly in glory with him forever. Not because you're awesome, but because he always keeps his promises. And he never lies. And that should humble us. What happens is, as Christians, we get saved and we're humbled by the reality that God might forgive someone who sins like me. And then as our life goes on and on, we develop some habits and some routines which are God's gift to us. Maybe you've memorized some scripture. Maybe you have developed a habit to be in his word. Maybe you've spent some time in in classes and you've developed some theological understanding which are more advanced maybe than some people. Maybe you've evangelized people and see people saved. Maybe there are sins you used to do and you no longer struggle with those sins. And as life goes on, we start to go, you know what? Man, I I think I got this thing. And arrogance starts to grow in us as though all of those things growing on our life had anything to do with you and I. All of those things occur in our life are merely the result of God being faithful to his own promises. And when we see God growing us to be more like Jesus and obedience working out in our life and and, and learning to love Jesus more, that should be all the more reason we just praise the Lord for his faithfulness to us. There is no place for spiritual arrogance in the life of a believer. All right, four things I want to mention before we end. And we're going to do this in the final verses, what we often call the doxology, verses 33 through 36. I'm trying to decide how to do this. Um, Let's start with this. Yeah, I'll start with this. I was trying to decide how nice to be. It's not that nice. Maybe you work with somebody or you have a family member and they, I don't know how to say this nice, so I'm not. They, they're like, their life is a train wreck. You know, you roll up into work one day and, and that guy comes rolling in and he's telling you stories. Yeah. Yeah, she moved out. Why? Well, buddies and I went to Vegas, and I, you know, I'm not exactly sure what happened, but all I know is she moved out. You know, and, and, and as a Christian, maybe you're sitting there going, man, I'm so glad I don't have to worry about that stuff because I don't go to Vegas and make those kind of decisions. I don't, I don't drink all night. I don't sleep with people I don't know. I don't do drugs. I don't cause trouble because I'm a Christian. I've I've got this list of rules that God has been gracious enough to work out in my life. And so what happens is our life starts to experience the blessed benefits of God's faithfulness to us. And then the guy next to us does a bunch of stuff that turns his life into a train wreck. And we start doing this a little bit. Yeah, I don't have to worry about that. That fellow Jesus. Yeah, what, what are we doing? The only reason we're experiencing those benefits is not because we've managed to keep our nose clean. It's just because God was that nice to us. There is no room in the Christian heart for that kind of arrogance. I think the phrase is, and it should be on repeat in our head when we have the opportunity to serve someone in that situation, but for the grace of God, there go I. It is only by the grace of God that my life isn't a train wreck. Imagine for a moment where your life would be if Jesus wasn't in it. 
and recognize that it's only by God's grace we experience the blessings of life with God today and the joys of seeing him work through our life. So when we see people around us in those situations, there's no place to look down our, our religious noses. There is a place there to give good news. That Jesus would save a sinner like me, he can even help you in your, in your life. Look at verse 33 of Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable. I love that word. How inscrutable his ways. Church is really the only place we say that word. How good is God's plan? Let me paraphrase this verse for you. He did what? If you were God, thank goodness for all of us, you're not. Say you were, and you were going to come up with a plan of redemption. What would it look like? I mean, just think about it. Just, you know, pencil it out in your head. If you were going to save humankind from their sin, what would you do, what would you do that they would need uh, to gain salvation? Would you just go ahead and pay for the whole thing with no guaranteed return? I mean, just think about this plan. This is what Paul is doing here in this, uh, this movement of worship. He's saying, who could imagine that God would do such a thing where he just simply says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to deal with the sin problem by paying for it, by sending my son. I'm going to deal with the death problem by giving you new life in my son. And here's what you need to do. Just believe me. Just trust me that I am that kind of person. I am that kind of God. And that's what this plan is like. That God would use human rebellious history to perfectly execute his plan of redemption to send Jesus. What does the Bible say about when Jesus came? At precisely the right time, Jesus came to offer salvation to those who would believe. How good is God's plan? It's unbelievably good. Perfectly executed, even in the midst of our rebellion and brokenness. Look at verse 35. Who has given a gift to God that he might be repaid? That's a rhetorical question. Well, let's ask it again. Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? God is not obligated to us no matter what we've done. Whether we've been a Christian five minutes or five decades, whether we have volunteered five minutes or five decades, whether we have given five dollars or five million, God is not obligated to us. I don't care how much you have done, said, given, volunteered, prayed, read, studied, memorized, you have not repaid God. That should free us from this great burden of having to repay God. He just gave it to us. And so therefore, we can give, serve, volunteer, read, study, memorize, and pray just because God is, is our God and worthy of our worship. We don't have to pay him back. And if you think you are paying back, you're not doing a very good job. You're never going to be able to pay him back. God cannot be obligated to us. When does this show up? When that arrogance moves in our hearts and we become discontented with how God is operating in our life. Maybe you've prayed a prayer like this. It's very spiritual. God, why aren't you hearing me about X? Haven't you noticed I have not done this, done this, given this, shared the gospel here. 
look, God, I think I have done quite a bit here. All I need you to do is hook me up over in this one little area. And then we get frustrated with God that he won't give us what we deserve. Right? When in fact we should be grateful that God doesn't give us what we deserve. God is not obligated to us no matter what we've done. And arrogance in the life of the believer will merely lead us to discontentment with God that he hasn't recognized how important we are. There's no room for it. You can't love God if you're discontented with him. Final verse. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Finally this, we'll close with this. Your salvation is designed to make you think highly of God not yourself. Your salvation is designed to make us think highly of God, not think highly of ourselves. Our salvation is not about working out in our life less stress. It's not about our life being better. It's all about discovering what God is like and day in and day out, discovering a little bit more about what God is like. And when we do, we say something like, Wow, you're you're really like this God. That you would forgive someone like me, that you would forgive my past sin, you would forgive the sin I'm struggling with today, and you would forgive me even though you know how I'm going to blow it tomorrow. God, that's incredible. Why would you do this? You must be a God who never lies and always keeps his promises. And when we're struck by that, that's called worship. When we recognize who God is, and what he is like. Faith humbles us because God's purposes are incredible, not us. And because God's faithfulness endures, not us.